Well, good morning, church. Good to see you all here this morning. We're going to study scripture together. So open your Bible to the New Testament book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. And while you're turning there, just a word of welcome to our guests who are with us this morning. It's a joy to have you here. It's a privilege to have you here. Thanks for being here this morning. I hope you come away uh, encouraged from our time in Scripture. We're walking through a series called Brand New, and we're asking the question from one text after another and one angle after another, what does it look like? When the Holy Spirit moves into our lives, what starts changing? What, what are the signs and evidences that we have been made brand new and are being made increasingly brand new in Jesus? All right, Luke 12, I'm going to read to us from verse 13 through 21. So if you'd follow along in your copy of God's word. Someone from the crowd said to him, being Jesus, said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Friend, he said to him, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? He then told them, watch out and be on guard against all greed. Because, because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Then he told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So a lot of this series is basically just asking the question, do Christians look different? Do we look different from those around us in the world who, who don't follow Jesus. So, you know, if you set out a, a hot cup of coffee into a room, that cup of coffee is going to trend in the direction of the ambient temperature of the room. The question is, are Christians just the ambient temperature of the culture around us, a wash in materialism, that happens to be our culture, or do we look different? Do we stand out? And Jesus is addressing that issue of where riches fall in our hearts and in our priorities. So in, in 1989, best-selling author Randy Alcorn, he wrote a book called Money, Possessions, and Eternity. It was a widely, again, best-selling book. Well, he delivered a message on that same topic from his pulpit around that time, and that sermon that he delivered on this issue of money generated an anonymous note. Now, I'll just say to you, in case you don't know, sometimes pastors get anonymous notes. And sometimes they'll get a note with a name attached to it, but oftentimes if it's anonymous, it's gonna be edgy. Uh, so this was an anonymous note after the sermon was delivered on money and it read this way to Pastor Alcorn. I was never so disappointed in a service as I was this Sunday. I have an unbelieving friend that I got to come with me and what were you preaching about? Money. I can assure you she was not impressed. And why money when there are so many beautiful things to say? You better reconsider such messages in the future. Leave money to God and he will handle everything, believe me. I love this church and usually like the sermons, but that was terrible. Signed, a Christian who loves to go to church to hear the word. 
is a zinger at the end, right? Um, now, what's the assumption behind the note from this anonymous writer? It's, the assumption is this, that the preaching of God's word must exclude meddling with people's money and with how people spend and use their money. But that assum- assumption, friends, I hope we're gonna see it from this text this morning, but we could show it from a lot of passages in the scripture. That assumption is contradicted by an avalanche of biblical texts. So over 450 passages in the Bible that deal with wealth. One of the main themes of the Gospel of Luke, which we're in this morning, one of the primary themes in this Gospel is the danger of riches. Oftentimes in this Gospel, Luke lets you overhear eavesdrop on Jesus and he tests the allegiance of a would-be disciple by asking that candidate to part with his wealth. And then he just waits to see what happens. I'm going this way, your money's going that way, where are you going? And, he, and then Luke lets you see taillights as the person goes in the opposite direction and walks away from Jesus and doesn't part with their money. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, wrote the battle hymn of the Protestant Reformation, 16th century. The last verse of which said to believers, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. And that was Martin Luther's way of saying, there are some times in which the church lives and places in which the church lives where your money goes one way and Jesus goes the other and you have to let your goods go. There's sometimes in the life of a believer in a certain culture where family goes one way and Jesus goes another and he says, let kindred go. Who is your ultimate allegiance to? Your money, your wealth, your family, or Christ? And, And Jesus will not mince words about this. He's not negotiating the terms. He says, you can't serve God and money. Either come with me or you go with your riches. When Jesus is sharing the famous parable in Luke, Luke chapter eight, a little bit before our passage, in Luke chapter eight, he's giving the parable, famous parable of the sower. And it's this image, this story where Jesus lets you picture this guy walking through the fields and he's casting seed in all directions for a harvest of of fruitfulness to come from the seed that's been cast. And the seed, Jesus will say, represents the word of God being cast abroad by the sower and the sower casts the seed and the seed is very, very good. It's a quality seed, it's the word of God. But much of what was sown didn't produce fruit, not because of the quality of the seed, but because the conditions of the soil. And here's how Jesus unpacks it. Some seed fell on the rock. When it grew up, it withered away since it lacked moisture. So that's a metaphor, the rock. Here's another one. Other seed fell among thorns. The thorns grew with it and choked it. Now he's gonna apply it and help us understand. Verse 13, the seed on the rock are those who when they hear, receive the word with joy, having no root, these believe for a while and fall away in a time of testing. So that's the rocky soil. Verse 14, as for the seed that fell among thorns, these are the ones who when they have heard go on their way and are choked with worries, riches, and pleasures of life and produce no mature fruit. So there in Luke chapter eight, we learn that one of the top three reasons some people don't produce fruit is because their hearts are entangled with their stuff. 
The word of God is there, the word of God is planted, but it gets tangled up with our craving for stuff, our craving for things, material pleasures that things can buy. The big point being, and Jesus says this all over the pages of the Gospels, we're not gonna bear fruit until Jesus is your treasure. He has to be supreme, he has to be first. He has to come first above all. Seek first the kingdom of God and then all these things will be added to you so put him first and everything else starts to line up. So in that way, it's no surprise that in our text right here in Luke chapter 12, Jesus is gonna move from a warning about riches to these really pointed applications. A Couple of pointed applications about putting God's kingdom first in verse 31 about providing for the poor in verse 33. And then he says in verse 33, if you look down in your text, he says, this is how you make money bags that won't grow old, an inexhaustible treasure in heaven. He says, you want true riches? You want to put something in a bag and it's not going to go away or be burned up? This is inexhaustible treasure. It's treasure in heaven. So our passage has three movements, if you will, for us to look at. Number one, a warning from God. A warning from God. Look with me at verse 13. Someone from the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Friend, he said to him, Who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? He then told them, Watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possession. So just take that in, right? Man walks up to Jesus. Oftentimes people would ask rabbis, teachers, recognized teachers, practical questions. Help me sort this out. We've got this dilemma going on. And that's what this guy is doing. He's saying, I'm being elbowed out of my inheritance by him. That's my brother. Help us sort out this issue. And what does Jesus do? It's as though Jesus says, there are good people already in that space doing their thing. They're called judges. (laughs) They're called arbitrators. However you do raise an important issue. Let's talk about greed. Right, this is a hard pivot from Jesus to take a question about inheritance and move instantly to a conversation about greed. He says, watch out for greed. You know, when you tell somebody to watch out for something, why do you do that? Because you think it might sneak up on them. Because you think that they, they might not see it coming. So when I was teaching our, our three kids to drive, there were certain places in town where I'd be like, this intersection is a is a thorny one. This one can get complicated. Or when you turn Lee Branch and you want to go to Zaxby's or you want to go to Freddy's, right there. All kind of bad stuff can happen right there, right? I'm trying to locate places in the city where it's like, watch out right there. Mind your P's and Q's, right? You say that because you want them to be wary. You want them to be extra vigilant in that space. And Jesus says, be wary. Be aware of greed because it'll sneak up on you. According to Jesus... Greed grips us without our knowing it. Grips us without our knowing it. So in another place, in Mark's gospel, chapter four, Jesus talks about his phrase, the deceitfulness of riches. He's using this phrase, basically personifying riches as if it's a person and saying, don't trust that guy. He's a trickster. Riches are deceitful. You ever had a friend who was fun to hang around with, but you wouldn't give him your car keys, right? Really fun, great, great Thursday night. This person's a recipe for a great Thursday night, but you wouldn't trust them as far, as my dad used to say, as far as you could throw them, right? So it's not a trustworthy person. We had a friend um, growing up in high school, my brother and I, we were two years apart, but we had a friend in common, 
and his name was Waitsman. That was his last name. Everybody just called him Waitsman. And uh, my mom, who was generally extremely accepting of our friends, but you know moms have a spidey sense kind of thing every now and then where they just get a feel for something. And it's like, I can't put my finger on it, but watch out for Waitsman, right? And she had a sense of just... Waitsman's in the house, just if he's in your room, you need to be in your room. Or if he's walking around, like, let's attend to him. Um, so that's just her early read on things, right? And she didn't say you can't hang out. She just said, watch him. So fast forward from there, um, and mom gets word about a, um, from the library about late return fees on my brother's, my brother Paul's library card. And these late return fees were associated with books on gambling and horse racing, uh, which in a pastor's family, that's particularly problematic. And so it's like, son, um, where have you been? We live five minutes from Jefferson Downs in New Orleans. So it was plausible that this could be happening. So she basically stages an intervention in the living room when I'm in high school with my brother and says, how long has my son been betting on horses? <laughs> and as soon as she says that, both Paul and I are thinking the exact same thing. Waitsman. It was because he used to always try to bum money off of us so he could bet at Jefferson Downs. He'd sneak in there. And then he always told us about this old man. He never named the mysterious old man, but the old man would give him tips on the horse that was going to win it all. And he's like, you give me three bucks, you're going to come back with 3,000, right? We never did it because mom gave us her spidey sense early on, right? But, But so then all these return fees, late return fees come up and we find out Waitsman stole my brother's library card checked out all these books on gambling and horse racing, didn't return them, and then we got hit with, with all the late fees. And it's like here in, in, in Luke chapter 12 and in Mark chapter 4, Jesus personifies riches as a guy you'd be a fool to trust. The deceitfulness of riches, he puts it right in the same conversation. If we're talking about riches, we're talking about a guy who's a trickster. Don't Trust him. You'd be a fool to trust him. It's like Jesus is teaching his disciples to look at wealth the way my mom looked at Waitsman. Always kind of be aware. Don't, don't trust him. Don't make riches your best friend unless you want to live with anxiety, unless you want heartburn. You like heartburn? Make riches your best friend. But if you don't, then don't. It's no surprise. Right after Jesus talks about riches in Luke 12, the very next thing is he talks about anxiety. Right? These two things are neighbors. They're right next to each other. So greed grips us without our knowing it. The second is just a reflective question. How am I being shaped by a culture of more? So if we're talking about the ambient temperature of our culture, one of the, on the short list of the biggest gods in our culture is materialism is the craving for more, the craving for wealth and the things that it can buy us. And I think we're naive if we just assume, yeah, we're skating right on through and none of it's getting on us. No, we walk through life with Velcro on. We live in a fallen world and we walk through life with Velcro on and some of it starts to stick to us. That's why you have texts like Hebrews chapter 12 that says, disentangle yourself from it because you're gonna walk through the world and and it's gonna start sticking to you. So just some questions for you to think about. Do we find ourselves discontent with God's provision? Think about that. Maybe it's getting on us. Here's another one. Are we especially aware of the lives of those who are tremendously wealthy in our culture? 
We know every move that they make in their lives, and yet we don't think that that's maybe influencing us in some negative ways. And we're, we're very attentive to the fact that they're tremendously wealthy. We're not necessarily as attentive to the fact that they're not tremendously happy. Right, so we're not seeing the trajectory of the life. What about my purchase history? So now, now I'm really, really uh, meddling, okay? Purchase history. If I look at my purchase history, is there evidence of moderation? Is there evidence of deferred gratification? A biblical term for that would be self-discipline or self-denial. What about my generosity? So come at it from the other direction. And are we truly blessed to be a blessing? How am I deploying my blessings and my resources to seek first God's kingdom? Does God's blessing that comes into my hands find its way to relieve the burdens of people around me who are in need? So right after Jesus talks about the principle in verse 15, he gives this illustration. He, he makes up the story. It's a parable. A parable is a made-up story that has meaning in it. Just he, Basically, Jesus is saying, pay attention to the details of the story I'm going to tell you because there's a moral behind it. So we move from a warning from God to a story about barns. A story about barns, verse 16, follow along. Then Jesus told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself but God said to him, you fool. This very night your life is demanded of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So we can look at places in scripture, for example, the book of Proverbs, where God's word teaches us principles about money and resources, the wisdom of saving money, the principles about wise stewardship, principles about giving to those in need, principles about even enjoying God's provision but doing so with thanksgiving. The point of this parable, though, is this. The man in the story, God is not his ultimate treasure. Goods are. And actually, there's something even deeper than goods, and it's himself. The goods are affording him luxuries that make much of him. Notice the underlying motivation. It's not an obsession with money per se, but with self. If you mark up your Bible, maybe just circle some of these words. He thought to himself, what should I do since I, I will do, I'll tear down, I'll say to myself, my goods, right? He's using all these terms. It's all about him. There again, you keep reading through the New Testament and you find guys like the Apostle Paul, writing in, in the book of 2 Timothy, and he says, um, here's what's coming down the street for us. Know this, hard times will come in the last days. What's that gonna look like, Paul? He says, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, and so forth. But notice where Paul begins. As things go from bad to worse, people will love themselves and people will love their stuff. People will love themselves and people will love their wealth. 
makes the top of the list, loving self and loving money. That's this guy in our text in Luke chapter 12. Now here's the thing. Again, think about the culture in which we live, the ambient temperature of our culture. You, you live like this guy that we see in Luke chapter 12. You live this kind of life here in America and what does our culture do? It puts your face on the cover of Fortune magazine. You live this life that's spoken about in Luke chapter 12 and God calls you a fool. You see how utterly striking the contrasts are. Fortune magazine cover and Jesus says, let me tell you a story about a fool. God reserves the right to correct us and direct us. You know, when the Apostle Paul, when he's writing to Timothy and he says, he talks about the things that the word does in our lives and he says the word of God is inspired and breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, correction, rebuke, training in righteousness. Two out of the four things that God's word gets done in the lives of believers are things that are adjusting and changing our direction, reproving and correcting believers. Jesus, he lets you overhear God calling this guy a fool so that you'll benefit so that you'll be wary, so that the rest of us will understand. That's not true riches. He's going after something. That's gonna wear out. Here's the way we should go. Jesus is teaching us that, right? So you just think about that in your own life. If God can't call me a fool when I'm acting like a fool, I can't call him Lord and mean it. That's the way this thing goes down. So just stop and think about the term lordship. We throw it around a lot. Lordship means God you can speak to any area of my life at any time and do so with absolute authority. That's what it means. The day you called him Lord, you said, talk to me about anything at any time and I will receive it as totally authoritative wisdom from you. And what does God say through his word to us as believers? Money will never buy you peace. Money will never buy you contentment. It will never buy you lasting joy. Don't buy the lie. God's wisdom leads to true riches. Life presents, you think about this, life presents moments of clarity where we realize how little money can buy. Doesn't it? Famous novelist Stephen King, he illustrated this point in a, commencement address that he gave in 2001 to the graduates of Vassar College and he's talking about how you can't buy your way out of pain no matter how much money you have and he says I have a lot of money here's what he says in the commencement address he says I'm worth I don't know how many millions of dollars I'm still in the third world compared to Bill Gates but on the whole I'm doing okay and a couple of years ago I found out what you can't take it with you means I found out while I was lying in the ditch at the side of a country road covered with mud and blood and with the tibia of my right leg poking out the side of my jeans like the branch of a tree taken down in a thunderstorm. I had a MasterCard in my wallet, but when you're lying in the ditch with broken glass in your hair, no one accepts MasterCard. If you find yourself in the ER with a serious injury or if the doctor tells you, yeah, that lump you felt in your breast is a tumor, you can't wave your diner's club at it and make it go away to which Solomon, one of the richest individuals in the history of humanity, says amen to that. Because in 
Solomon's diary, which is a book called Ecclesiastes, he writes these words. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Nor he who loves wealth with his income, this also is vanity. You want to know why Jesus tells such a dramatic story about the danger of greed? Is because the billboards won't. The commercials won't. Greed lies about where true life is actually found. That's why we need otherworldly, time-transcending wisdom from God. He speaks. Let me, let me be really clear. Um, we are not saved by our works. Even in this category, we're not saved by progress we make in contending against materialism. We're saved by Jesus, full stop. His blood covers all of our sins, all the temptations we've gone after, every broken cistern we've tried to drink from to get life, Jesus rescues us from that, gives us his righteousness as we trust in him and repent of our sins. But bear in mind, Jesus is a redeemer. You track the stories of redemption all the way through the Bible, you've got the great massive story of redemption in the Old Testament, which is called the Exodus. Primary player involved in that was a guy named Moses. And Moses comes in and he knocks on the door of the Pharaoh and he says, the people are coming with me. Where are they going? They're leaving here. They're leaving you. They're not gonna live under your thumb, under your whips, under your chains. They're coming with me into freedom. And Moses leads the people of God out of Egypt, out from under the bondage and reign of Egypt's gods, and they go out to serve God in freedom. And that story is pointing forward to the greater Exodus. It's pointing forward to the new and greater Moses who does what? Who dies on the cross and then notifies all the powers and principalities, I'm setting my people free. They're coming with me. They're not under you anymore. Now they're under me. It's freedom time. He announced that's redemption. That's the song of redemption. Every rival power, every false god loses its grip today. Jesus announces that in his cross. So friend, understand this morning, there is forgiveness in Christ no matter what sin it is you've been clinging to. For all who repent and believe, there is total redemption, total forgiveness. Not just forgiveness though, brand new Brand new life is on the offer for all who follow Jesus, which means what? Follow Jesus. Put your trust in Christ and go with him into freedom. Here, here's the point for us to think about. God doesn't expose the idols of our hearts to shame us, but to free us. Friends, Luke 12 is good news. It might get up in your grill, but it's good news. It's inviting you into freedom. Randy Alcorn's critic back in the day, who said, just preach the Bible, don't preach about money, or I might leave the church. Here's what that guy didn't realize. If I'm a professing Christian, and I want to avoid all the warnings about riches, changing churches won't do the trick. You're gonna need a different Bible. <laughs> You're gonna need a different Jesus, because this Jesus is the Lord of the world and he's talking to his disciples and he's saying, don't trust riches. And the Apostle Paul would echo the same words. We could look at so many passages. Here's one, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. Those who desire to be rich 
fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Who's going to line up for that? He's saying, open your eyes. That's what's coming. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving, the love of money craving, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's basically holding it out before you and saying, what is your ultimate treasure? Is it all this wealth that you've acquired or is it Christ? And if Christ says, let goods and kindred go, do you let go or do you walk away from him. Hear this, friends. God doesn't talk to us about money because he's fascinated with money. He talks to us about money because we're fascinated with money. That's why he keeps bringing this up. It's because our hearts keep going in that direction. God is interested in my heart. My heart is interested in my money. Therefore, God wants to talk about my money. My wealth, my resources. Why? Because he wants my heart. Not just my wallet, not just my spending, not just my gift. Ultimately, he wants my heart and he wants to give me life. That's what this is about. So the movements here in our text, a warning from God, a story about Barnes and the way of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom. Verse 20. God said to him, you fool, This very night your life is demanded of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Verse 21, that's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So what does rich toward God mean in this passage and in the gospels in particular I think it means this, rich toward God equals loving the Lord supremely, loving our neighbor sacrificially, and marching to the beat of the coming kingdom. The beat of the kingdom that's coming is different from the beat of the kingdom of this world. And he says, march in this tempo, not that one. Same passage I read it a moment ago, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. Paul goes on to say this, As for the rich in this present age, he's talking to believers, by the way, believers who are blessed with wealth. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Don't let it go to your head. Don't let it make you treat people different. Not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who, notice the spin on the word, richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And in this way, that's what the word thus means, in these ways, you're storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. What is our chief ambition? And what would the world say if they looked at my life? What would they say? I think I know your chief ambition. There's a story in the numbers. I think I can see what you're after, Matt. Dr. Radhakrishnan a Hindu philosopher and the former president of India. And he 
made this comment to Christians many years ago. He said this, you claim that Jesus Christ is your savior, but you do not appear to be more saved than anyone else. I'm gonna read that again. You claim, Christians, that Jesus Christ is your savior, but you don't appear to be more saved than anyone else. In other words, he's saying ambient temperature, your coffee's as cold as mine, and everybody else's in this room is the same as yours. So you keep talking about gospel transformation, brand new, brand new, brand new, but I'm not seeing any of it. That's the problem. So what does brand new look like in Luke chapter 12? And here I'm gonna zoom out for just a second because we're actually in a section of Luke's gospel where Jesus is contrasting the lives of those who are outside the kingdom but highly religious and those who are inside the kingdom. And it's as if Jesus is saying in Luke chapter 12, you wanna see evidence of true riches? People who are filling their money bags with stuff that's not gonna fall out, stuff that lasts? Don't look at somebody's portfolio, look for this. Look for this, number one, integrity. You see that in verses one through three. Their outside life matches their inside life. And he talks about pharisaical hypocrisy. He says, you wanna see true riches? Look for boldness. That's a mark of the kingdom. People identifying with Jesus even when it costs them. Look for that. Look for this. Look for discernment. People who see the emptiness of making worldly success the ultimate goal. That's where we are in our particular text in verse 13 through 21. He says, look for this. Look for people who trust implicitly in the Father. They know they have a Father who cares for them and provides for them, and they act like birds they know that the Father will feed them. And then last, this is true riches. Look for people marked by generosity. They're becoming more like the Father who provides for those in need. You see that list? This is Jesus saying, there's a lot of ways that we can talk about outward religion, but then there's this stuff that grows in the heart. There's this, there's this inner dynamic of transformed spiritual life that leads to integrity and boldness and discernment and trust and generosity. And some might argue, you look at that list again on your notes, right? Some might argue those practices won't get you very far in this world. Well, Jesus says my kingdom is not of this world, so that shouldn't surprise us. He told us that on day one. If you see the world walking this way and Christians walk the other way, don't be surprised by that. I told you one day one. Everybody who wants to live under the reign of Jesus, it's not about ladder climbing. It's not about clawing for wealth and clawing for comfort. It's these things. This is the marks of the kingdom. How can we preach a hope that's beyond this world if our hopes and joys are bound to the things of this world? See how that's not going to land as credible because the world's gonna say, eh, yeah, I, I hear it, but I'm not really seeing that. I'm not really seeing that story unfolding. What if like the early church in Acts, and we're gonna study Acts pretty soon here, starting in the fall. What if like the early church in Acts, what if we surprise the world again with otherworldly generosity, otherworldly compassion? where a guy named Barnabas finds out that there are people in the church who are struggling to eat, and he says, I got a field over here. I can sell it, and you can have all the money. 
This is, this is the early church. That was the magic of the early church. They, they got this. They understood this. Nobody forced him. Nobody pressured him or guilted him into selling the field. He just runs off and makes a sale and comes back with the proceeds, lays it at the apostles' feet and says, whatever needs there are in the church, take care of it with that. I don't need that field. What if the world saw what our lives were aimed at and they concluded that we had a different, a different definition of what it means to be rich? That's the challenge before us from our Lord.